Amen. Let's, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your grace that never fails to take us through. Whatever circumstance, whatever trial, whatever mountain is in front of us, thank you for always being there for us. You may not spare us from the storm, Lord, but you carry us through it. You simultaneously give us your strength and your comfort. And we're so grateful for your providence, Father. We pray now that you will visit with us. Open our hearts to the message that you've prepared for us. Inspire and, and challenge us, Lord. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in the middle of the previous century, the mile run was a testing ground for the limits of human athletic ability. And the world in the early 1950s was emerging from the Second World War. And after all that death, people were pursuing life, including the expansion of what the human body could do. In 1953, Edmund Hillary and, and Tenzing Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest. The next year, amid much speculation that man could not run a mile in under four minutes, Roger Bannister broke through at Oxford University. Six weeks later, a rival, Australian John Landy, ran one second faster. Well, these two feats became the prelude for a summer sensation that that year. Vancouver, then a, then a remote forestry town on Canada's distant west coast, was host to the British Empire and Commonwealth Games. And these two runners were going to face each other head to head. The Bannister-Landy showdown was dubbed the Miracle Mile. Sports Illustrated, in its debut issue that summer, described it as the most widely heralded and universally contemplated foot race of all time. The only two men to have ever run a mile in under four minutes were going to go head-to-head -head in a race for the ages. So after much hype and speculation and anticipation, the day of the race finally arrived. It was Saturday, August 7th, 1954. It was a hot day, brilliant blue skies and bright sun, the newly built Empire Stadium on the, on the city's east side, framed by the North Shore Mountains, was brimming with a raucous crowd of 32,000 onlookers. And the broadcast would also be heard by tens of millions more on radio and early television sets. And the race did not disappoint. Landy, the, the favorite from Australia, he, he planned to outrun his rival. He was going to run, sprint as fast as he can from the start. And he said, my technique was just to run Roger Bannister off his feet because it's the only way I knew how to run. Landy recalled, I only gave myself a 50-50 chance. And what Landy was trying to ward off was Bannister's well-known final burst of energy, one the, the Brit used to run down opponents at the end of races. So the gun went off. And the resounding memory in the mind of Charlie Warner, who took the iconic photograph of the race, which we're going to see in just a minute, was an eerie silence in the stadium. Landy burst out in front, 
Bannister was more than 10 meters off the pace nearing the halfway mark. I regretted, Bannister said, letting him get so far ahead. But Bannister slowly closed the gap, and on the final lap, amid the rising roar of the crowd, he unleashed his finishing kick on the final bend. Approaching the last few meters, Landy still held the lead. The Australian looked like he was going to win, but as he neared the finish line, something happened. He was haunted by the question, where's Bannister? <laughs> and, and as he turned to look over his left shoulder, Bannister passed him on the right. He took the lead, and it's the moment Warner captured in the photo. Take a look. The men sprinted to the finish line, and Bannister won in 3 minutes 58 seconds, 0.8. Landy was less than a second behind, 3.59.6. And Landy later told a Time magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. And the race would forever be memorialized. Poor guy will never forget it. With that look back in, in, in a bronze statue at the site of the stadium that still stands today. Take a look at it. That's it. Poor guy is never going to forget that. Looking back, it can not only keep you from victory, it can not only bring you defeat, it, it can sometimes have tragic consequences. Right? Ask Lot's wife about that. Well, for the nation of Israel on their way out of Egypt, looking back almost proved to be the fatal act that could have ended a nation. Thank God for His grace and for Moses' obedience in finding another way and inspiring the Israelites to go forward. You'll never find victory going backwards. It's, it's a message that still resonates with us today. You'll never progress staying still, looking around you. You'll never find anything going back. Only in a focused effort of going forward can we reach our destination, the finish line. So turn with me to our text or look up at the video screens. Exodus chapter 14. And for a bit of context here, the Israelites were fresh off of their exit from slavery in Egypt. And after the, the devastating tenth of ten plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians, Pharaoh's fed up and he says, forget it, go, leave. And the Israelites don't get too far. In fact, it's, it's only a couple days when they find they're hemmed in by mountains on either side of them and the Red Sea in front of them. And then it gets even worse. So let's read in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they're bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. And then God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? 
that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt, Egypt with captains over every one of them. Everything he had. He's coming with everything he had. Pharaoh brought it all. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. And so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and all the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haheroth before Baal-Zephon. And I want us to stop here for a second. I want us to notice in the passage we just read why Pharaoh changed his mind. I want us to realize why Pharaoh and the Egyptian army decided to pursue the Israelites after just letting them go. I want us to, to take note of why the Israelites found themselves in an impossible situation, hemmed in on every side, nowhere to go. Why? Why? Because God planned it that way. It was all part of his miracle in the making. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God said in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue them. Who put the mountains in the sea there? Who led the Israelites to this point of being trapped on all sides? Who told them exactly where to camp? It was God. He was setting up something spectacular that would forever change history. You know, so many times we go through things in life that make no sense to us. But God has a plan. God is in control. Sometimes God is trying to do something monumental in our lives. Something spectacular. But Lord, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening to me. God has a plan. He's in control. Lord, Lord, why would you finally free us from the Egyptians only to have us die out here in the desert? Or, or be recaptured by them? Or just wait. God has a plan. God is in control. His plan may make no sense to us at all, but, you know, that's because we only see it from one side. We only see things in the moment. Trust Him. He has the entire blueprint. He has the entire plan. He sees around the corner. He sees beyond that mountain that's in front of us. Trust what He's doing. In the end, it will be better. And I'm going to remind us of that. A little bit later. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that, that we told you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Have you been there? You feel like those Israelites sometimes in the, in the middle of an impossible situation. There's no solution we can think of. There's no help we can imagine that, that will remedy the situation. You've got a problem and, and you don't have the answer. We've all been there. And what's worse, you can't even imagine a possible answer. There's nothing in your power you can do to rescue yourself. Friend, that's where God begins to work. That's where he begins. We reach the end of ourselves and our ideas and our resources and our, and our efforts and our attempts. And God can begin his miracle. We're going to learn from this Red Sea crisis today. And we're going to glean three key commands that God wants us to obey in our journey to the promised land. Let's take a look at them today. Our first point, don't go back. Did you notice the first thing the Israelites did in the, in the crisis? Besides complain, they were Hall of Fame complainers. They looked back. Hey, remember when we were in Egypt? Moses! What? Were there no graves back there? You had to bring us here? We're going to die in the desert? We, we, we were better off serving the Egyptians in Egypt. I wish we never left. I, I wish we could go back. Why, why did we leave? It was easier back there. Really? Really, were you, were you better off as slaves? We do this, don't we, in our lives? We, we get so dissatisfied with the present that we start to look back to the past. We focus on it. And, and when the battle gets too hard against sin, against circumstances, against the devil, we, we begin to look back to a time that we magically decide to remember as much nicer than it was. We think of it as much more fondly than it ever was. And, 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 and we remember a time where there was no conflict and there was no battle. Friend, there was no battle because you lost. You had already lost. You were enchained. The battle was over. You were a slave to sin and, and in chains that you couldn't break out of. Christ freed us from that. He broke those chains. He released us. Don't go back there. God rescued you from that place. Don't glamorize it. Don't even look back. The, the nation of Israel constantly did this on their pilgrimage to the promised land. When they were hungry, oh, the leeks and, and onions and, and garlic of Egypt. And now they're trapped before the Red Sea. Oh, the good old days of slavery in Egypt. You don't go back to something worse because things are a little difficult here. You have to exercise your faith. Forget what's back there. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind. There's nothing worth remembering. There's nothing worth going back for. Forget it. Don't give it a second thought. Going backwards is never an option in our spiritual journey. 
on April 21st in the year 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes sailed into the harbor of Veracruz, Mexico. He brought with him only 600 men. And yet over the next two years, his vastly outnumbered forces were able to defeat Montezuma and all the warriors of the Aztec Empire. 600 men, making Cortes the conqueror of all of Mexico. How was this incredible feat accomplished? When, when two prior expeditions had failed to even establish a single colony in Mexico. Well, here's the, here's the secret. Cortes knew from the beginning that he and his men, he had few of them, and they faced incredible, insurmountable odds. And he knew the road before them would be dangerous and difficult. And he knew that his men would be tempted to abandon their quest and, and return to Spain. So therefore, as soon as Cortes and his men had come ashore and unloaded all their provisions, he ordered the entire fleet of 11 ships destroyed. His men stood on the shore and watched as their only possibility of retreat burned and sank. In addition, from that point on, they knew beyond any doubt there was no return, no turning back. Nothing lay behind them but a vast, empty ocean. Their only option was to go forward, to conquer, or die. That's it. There's no turning back. We are here to win. We're here to overcome by the power of Jesus Christ. What do you think would have happened at the Red Sea had the Israelites gone back? They decided to turn back to their now newly glamorized life of slavery. They'd turn around, they'd head back, they'd run right into Pharaoh and his army. And if Pharaoh didn't kill the whole lot of them out of anger for losing his, his son in that tenth plague, then he'd certainly bring them back and enslave them again. And do you think he would treat them as nicely as he did before? Mm -mm. No, their slavery would have led to their death. God will not help you if you go back. He was there. He was already there. And he rescued them out of that oppression and slavery. If they were to go back to that enslavement, God would not go back with them. If we go back to what God has already brought us out of, he will not go with us. I don't want to take a single step that God will not take with me. Our past is exactly that. It's past. It's over. Going back to it will lead to nothing more than, than heartache, sin, and death. There's no joy there. There's no peace there. There's no freedom there. After the Civil War, the story is told about Robert E. Lee, that he visited a woman who took him to the remains of what was a massive, grand, old tree in front of their home. And there she cried bitterly that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by Union artillery fire. And she waited for Lee to condemn the North, or at least sympathize with her loss. But Lee who knew the horrors of war and had suffered the pain of defeat, he looked at her and he said, cut it down, madam. Cut it down, my dear madam, and then forget it. Forget it. Move on. There's nothing there worth going back to. 
You'll never move forward until you let go. Let it go and never look back. Don't be tempted to turn back. Don't go back to your chains, to your enslavement. Don't go back to being a slave to fear and to sin. Proverbs 26.11 reminds us, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. We go back. You don't want to make the same mistake over and over. Turn your focus, turn your eyes off your past and onto Christ. Christ is here today. Christ is forward. That's our first command at the Red Sea. Let it go. Don't go back. Our second command, don't stay stagnant. Hey, Moses, you know what? This is not so bad. There's a beautiful breeze here. Gorgeous mountains on each side. And this ocean view is to die for. We're going to just stay here. We're going to camp out here. We love camping, right? We're going to enjoy the beauty of nature. Friend, God didn't bring you here to camp. He didn't bring you out here to camp here. This is not the promised land. So often in our spiritual journey, we, we get comfortable where we are. We're used to our condition. We're used to wallowing, right? In our pity, in our past in our anger, in our bitterness. We get so used to wallowing in them, we, we wouldn't know what to do without them. Many had rather stay where they are and camp out there and enjoy the view. We've grown comfortable with being depressed, with being angry, with being inactive in the church. Whatever it is that's holding us there, we've grown too comfortable with it. And we're comfortable with this place of bitterness or cynicism. But God is calling us out of that. God is calling us out of our comfort zones and calling us out of these places where we've camped. Friend, if you're there today, then you're spiritually stagnant. And if you're staying still spiritually, if you're not progressing, you're moving backwards. It's not a safe place. Had the Israelites stayed put, they would have been killed or captured by the charging Egyptian army. If we stay put, if we don't grow, if we're languishing in our pity or past or anger or bitterness or whatever is holding us back and keeping us from getting up and moving on, then we're a prime target. We're a prime target for the devil. That's who he loves to pull down, the low-hanging fruit. Right? The ones who aren't moving forward. The ones whose, whose, whose circumstances have taken over. And they've stopped growing in faith. I don't want to be low-hanging fruit for the devil's picking. Where he can easily plant seeds of discontentment and fear and dissatisfaction. I don't want to stay where I am spiritually. I want to grow stronger. I, I want to grow deeper. I want to move forward. I want to pull up my tent stakes and I want to get moving. I want to get to the promised land. You know what happens when we stay stagnant? We start focusing intently on everything around us. On other people, on sounds we hear, on things we fear, on thoughts that hit us. Had the Israelites set up camp right there, they would become obsessed with everything they saw and heard. Wait a minute, how close are those Egyptians? I think they took another step. 
Wait a minute, what did I hear in the mountains? Oh, great, there's wild animals now. Hey, wait, does that tide seem to be coming in farther and farther? Right? You stop walking by faith and what happens? Fear. Fear takes over. Instead of putting your trust in God and His Word, you begin to believe more and more the lies of the devil. And he will do this. He will put the fear of sickness, death, bankruptcy, failure, everything imaginable into your life. When God's Word says you can have victory over all that. You can have victory over all your circumstances and situations in Him. You're just passing through here. Move along. When they came out of Egypt that day, we read it, it said they, they came out boldly. They were going forward. They were moving to the promised land and there wasn't a speck of fear in their heart. They marched out there singing the songs of Zion and I believe the tambourines were playing and the people were singing and rejoicing in the Lord. They were on their way out of bondage into Canaan. They were going forward. And as long as they were moving in that direction going forward, they were full of faith and everything was all right. But the minute they stopped going forward, faith was replaced with fear. And look what they became. Instead of boldly going out, rejoicing in the Lord, they became, instead of an army full of faith, singing the victory songs of Zion, marching toward Canaan, they were now a bunch of scattered sheep, crying, wailing, complaining, accusing, pointing fingers in the wilderness, and filled with fear. If you're here today and you're filled with fear, then it's a good, good sign that you've stopped growing spiritually in your spiritual journey, in your walk. You've stagnated. You've stopped making spiritual progress. Somewhere along the way, you put down tent stakes here and you've camped by the sea and faith is slowly being replaced with fear. And unless you pull up those stakes and get moving, then you're in serious trouble. It's easy. It's easy to enjoy and be comfortable where we are, to be satisfied with, with what we're doing, but that's not what God wants. He wants us to replace fear with faith, and that comes by going forward. What else happens when we're stagnant? Well, when we're not living by faith, when our eyes are not on God, and we're actively surveying our surroundings and and our circumstances and our rut, we're constantly looking at our rut. Oh, how the complaining begins. Moses, what? There weren't enough graves back in Egypt? You know, we told you this was going to happen, Moses. You forced us out. Eh, didn't you hear me? I th or he said it, I think, that we shouldn't leave. We should stay there. Moses, you made us do this. This is your fault. Oh, the finger pointing begins. They blame all their problems on Moses. And we're so quick to point fingers. And when things aren't going our way, we want to assign blame. The complaining always begins, and complaining is a sure sign of no forward progress. Always, every time. Instead of being marching, victorious army, they're, they're standing there murmuring, complaining, grumbling against Moses and the God who just brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And it'll happen every time. You want to know who the murmurers and complainers are around you? They're the people that have stopped going forward. They're the people who are not growing in the Lord anymore. When you're going forward with God up front, where the action is, you don't have time to complain. 
when you're spending time with the Lord in prayer and in His Word, making progress in your spiritual life, there's no room for complaining. It doesn't mean nothing's wrong. Something's always wrong. Life isn't always pleasant. Things don't always suit us. But when you're going forward with your eyes on the Lord and your goal, the promised land, you don't have time to stop and murmur and complain because you trust in God for the situation. Instead of endless and constant complaining, you'd roll up your sleeves and get to work. Help make the things you're complaining about better. We must also remember the effects our stagnation has on those around us. You know, if you're murmuring and complaining, those around you are going to be affected by the negativity. Right? You hear it. What vibe do you let off? Well, if you aren't going forward, you're hindering somebody, somebody else from going forward. There were several million people in that valley, and the people in the 50th row couldn't move forward until the people in the first row moved. Right? There are a lot of people standing standing behind you and just watching and waiting for you to make the right move. To get up from where you are. To make the right choice. To trust God. They're watching. People are looking at your lives. You're an example. Moms and dads, your children may just be waiting for you to stop fussing and get back on the right path and start moving forward like you used to. And if mom and dad would make the right choices, then it's far more likely than the that the children would make the right choices. And it's a tough thought to think. Have you ever thought that you might be holding your children back because you're the one setting the example? If you're spiritually stagnant or cold, then guess what? They probably will be also. Being stagnant is so dangerous. Not only... Will we not overcome the fear and the, and the pity and the anger and the bitterness within which we wallow? Not only will we become prime targets for the devil to infiltrate our minds and our thoughts with fear and discontent, not only will we become disgruntled and turn into constant complainers and grumblers, not only might we stumble those who are watching our lives, the saddest part is that we will never reach the promised land that way. We will never never obtain the abundant life that God meant for each one of us to have. Friend, number one, don't go back. Number two, don't stay stagnant. And our third and final point, if we're not to go back, we're not to stay here, then what do we do? We go forward. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Don't keep asking God what to do when he's already presented the answer. Go forward. We do this, don't we? We know what God wants us to do, but it's too hard. It's difficult. It's costly. It, it, it requires more effort than we think we can give or more sacrifice than we're willing to make. So we waffle and we keep searching. And we keep asking God, tell me again, you know, make it really clear to me what you want me to do. You know, he's already provided the answer. Look what he said here. Why do you cry to me? I, I told you, go forward. Uh, but, but God, I don't see how... Go forward. Lord, I, I don't think I can... Go forward. God wants us to exercise our obedience and our faith in the face of difficult or even impossible 
situations. The nation of Israel, look where they came from. They were just eyewitnesses. They had just seen God perform ten jaw-dropping, eye-popping, unexplainable, bona fide miracles. Unlike any that had yet been seen firsthand in Scripture. And did they think that a little water was insurmountable for God? He formed that sea. He carved out its depth with his hand. H2O, he invented H2O. He brought two hydrogen molecules and two oxygen molecules together over and over again to fill up that depth. Do you think he can't handle it now? Do you think he can't control it now? Friend, God has brought you out and freed you from the clutches of sin and slavery. Look what he's done already. He's done so much in your life. You're here today because of his providence and his goodness and his faithfulness and his miracles. You are a miracle. You're a living, breathing, walking miracle. And is what you're going through today too hard for God? No. There's nothing he can't do for you today if you take that first step of faith. Go forward and trust him. Think of a plane. A great illustration says this. A plane is made to go forward and upward. And between a plane and every other form of transportation, locomotion, horse, wagon, automobile, the bicycle, locomotive, speedboat, the great battleship, there's a big difference. All of those can come to a standstill without danger. And they can all reverse and back up. But there's no reverse about the engine of an airplane. It cannot back up. It dare not stand still. If it loses its momentum and forward drive, it crashes. The only safety for the airplane is in its forward and upward motion. What a parable that is for the Christian life. The only safe direction for the Christian to take is forward and upward. If he stops, if he begins to, to slip and go backward, that's the moment we're in danger. There's nothing worth going back to. There's nothing worth staying still for. We must go forward in faith. Faith in a God who's never let us down. Faith in a God who's never given us cause to doubt Him. Let's read about the fruits of that faith. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod... And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of, the, of Israel. So there was a cloud. There was a cloud and darkness to the one and light by night to the other. So that the one did not come near the other all that night. The Egyptians were, were, they couldn't see the Israelites at that point. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. 
and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them. At this point now, they had progressed farther. Now they could see what the Israelites were doing. We're going to follow. They went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, all his chariots and his horsemen. And now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. Oh boy. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand in obedience over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. When God does something, He does it completely. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Go forward. Is there any reason to doubt God? He controlled the hearts of the Egyptians. He controlled, he hardened their hearts at just the right time. He controlled the wheels on their chariots. He controlled the wind and the waves and the waters. The situation was never in doubt. There wasn't even a threat. God just wanted them to exercise their faith. God told Moses, tell the people to start moving forward. Take that rod and stretch it toward the sea. You're going to move. And when Moses obeyed and took the first step and did what God told him to do, the winds began to blow. The waters began to roll back on every side. God always moves when we're willing to obey Him and we take that step of faith that He asks of us. How many times? We read it over and over again. Does the Bible say that when the priests moved or when the trumpets sounded or when the army shouted, then God did the miraculous. But we, we have it backwards. We say, well, if God will do something, then, then I'll know and, I'll, and I'll, I'll walk. No, that's all wrong. It doesn't work that way. God says, you take me at my word, you step out on the water, you go forward, and when you do, I will slip my hand under you, and I'll be there to see you through, and I'll do the miraculous. God is waiting on you and me. If you're willing to take that step and go forward, God will part the sea and destroy the enemy. He will do the miraculous. Young William Wilberforce was discouraged one night in, in the early 1790s after another defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in Egypt. 
tired and frustrated, he opened his Bible and began to leaf through it. And a small piece of paper fell out and fluttered to the floor. It was a letter. It was a letter written by John Wesley shortly before his death. And Wilberforce had read it, and he read it again now. And it said this, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through the glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this this very thing, you'll be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if he has, if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go forward in the name of God and in the power of his might. Go forward, dear friend. God will do miracles on your behalf if you take that next step of faith. We can't stay in the past. We can't wallow in the present. But by God's grace, we can move forward in resolute faith and trust. I told you in the end, God's plan is always better than ours. Always better than our own. Had the Egyptians, had the Israelites written their own story, there would have been no crisis at the hands of the Egyptians. The Egyptians would never have come chasing after them. They would have continued their journey in peace. And they'd end up having to deal with Egypt at some later conflict. The Egyptians, meanwhile, whose dynasty was growing in power at a rapid pace, would have continued their rise, and who knows where that would have led. And the Israelites would always be looking over their shoulder. Where's Egypt? Like that runner. Where's Bannister? God had a better plan. In one night, he wiped out their pharaoh and their army in one fell swoop. Egypt was still reeling from the ten plagues. And Pharaoh brought everything he had, the entire army, all their chariots, everything he had. And look now where they were. With no heir to take over as Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh's only son was killed in the tenth plague. And no army left. No Pharaoh, no army, no heir. They were left devastated. And it's a very fascinating historical story to to, to read and I'd encourage you to do it, about the uh, cover-up that Egypt tried to, uh, to put together, the queen of Egypt mainly, to cover up that they no longer had a leader, they no longer had an heir, they no longer had an army. Well, if the rest of the world knew that, they, they'd come attacking. So it's a very fascinating story to read about the, uh, the cover-up that ensued. But regardless, the Egyptian dynasty would never be the same again. Egypt would never again be a threat to Israel. Never again. They wouldn't have to worry about it. So was God's plan better than what theirs would have been? Always. Every time. Israel defeated a nation that day without lifting a single finger. Without lifting a weapon. Go forward in obedience. Trust Him and watch what He can accomplish in your life. So so what exactly did they do? What was their contribution in this war? What did they do, the nation of Israel, to accomplish such an amazing feat and to completely wipe out their enemy in one night? To obliterate a dynasty in one night? What did they do? What military strategy did they take? Nothing. What weapons did they choose and use? None. They just walked. 
They went forward and they let God do their fighting for them. It's the single most effective strategy in life. Walk with God, trust Him, go forward with Him, and let Him do your fighting. The enemy doesn't stand a chance. Egypt never had a chance. Friend, I don't know what your situation is today. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're at a crossroad today. You're standing in front of the Red Sea. Don't go back to the world and its sin. You've tried that. It didn't work. It left you broken. It left you with heartache. It didn't fulfill. Take that step of faith and go forward. Take Christ into your heart. Ask for His forgiveness and accept His free gift of salvation and eternal life and really begin to live. And dear believer, you might be up against your own Red Sea today. You may be in the middle of a difficult trial or, or a seemingly impossible circumstance. God might be asking something of you. He might be asking of you to take a step of faith, to trust Him blindly. You're at a standstill. Fear will grip you and paralyze you and, and take you down if you stay where you are. Sin will destroy you. Sin will crush you and destroy you if you turn back. Let go of the past. Get up out of your stagnant state and take that step of faith into the Red Sea and watch it part. Take one step and watch Him take all the rest. Go forward. One small step of faith. You want to see God move in mighty ways in your life? You want to see modern-day miracles in your midst? Take one small step of faith and watch what He can do. Do not be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. We can claim that today. We can claim that and we can echo what Moses told the people. Trust God, he said, and the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Trust God, friend. Take that step of faith. And those troubles you see today, you will never see again. That heartache you carry today, you will never carry again. That depression you're struggling with today, you will never have again. That crisis, that problem you're up against today, you will never see again. Go forward and watch the Lord fight for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in faith today. We're done looking back at our past we're done wallowing in our present circumstance. We're done looking around us in fear at what might happen next. We're done looking at ourselves and staying comfortable with our sin or our hurts or our anger or our bitterness. We're done with fear, Lord. We're done with, with blame. We're done with complaining. We're done being stagnant. We resolve to, to let the past go, to get up, and to go forward with you. We know, Father, that you can perform miracles in our lives, in our crises, in our trials, in whatever situation we're going through. We trust you. And we place ourselves and our circumstances in your mighty hands. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We walk on in faith. We go forward and we step into that Red Sea fully expecting your miracle. 
in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.